Good morning. Last week I was in Manhattan and they were kind enough to have the temperature 50 to 55 degrees last week when I was up there doing a seminar. I want to say hi to our new friends in Manhattan. And unfortunately, if you saw the news, they're getting two inches of snow last night on the first day of spring. So I'm really glad I, I was there last weekend and not this weekend. So I'm back here. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, that we will partake of Jesus and experience your transformation in our hearts and minds. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of other announcements, for, particularly for our online class. If you have our old website cards that you want to share with people and it has our old address on it, please throw those away and just ask us for new ones. Our new address is P.O. Box 28266, Chattanooga, Tennessee. So you have a Collegedale address on the card. Throw those away um, because we're still getting mail and, and they're forwarding it still, but soon they'll stop forwarding the mail to that old, from that old address. So I appreciate that. And then another announcement, the New Testament paraphrase, the remedy, it's available online at our website and Android devices. If you have an Android device, the app is now available for free. It came out Thursday. The iOS for the Apple device, they take about a week or two longer. So a week or two from now, we should have that available. We have some cards out there if you want to let people know about that. Alrighty, so we're doing lesson number one in the book of Luke. And the title this week is The Coming of Jesus. And when you hear the title, The Coming of Jesus, what pops into your mind? Me too. First, as soon as I read that, I thought the second coming. But guess what? It's really about the first coming. (laughs) This is about his his birth uh, in uh, Bethlehem, uh, is what it was referring to. The memory text says from Luke 137, For God, nothing will be impossible. For God, nothing will be impossible. See, this text serves as a really good example of verses that can, can be misused, misunderstood, misapplied, and the dangers of taking the Bible text itself out of context, a verse, God said it, I believe that settles the type thing, and believing it without thinking through what it actually means. So in this particular one, in this statement, is it true, is it true that for God, nothing is impossible? There you go. So there's a, there's a Bible verse she's referring to, which is Titus 1-2. And it says that uh, God who cannot lie, God cannot lie. So we can actually say it's impossible for God to lie. There's another one, James 1-13. It says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. So we can say it's impossible for God to be tempted by evil. Uh, are those the only two impossibilities for God? One says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. For with God, nothing will be possible. Okay, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Okay, still, let's, put it th- let's look at that one then. With God, how about with God, how many parents with God pray for the salvation of somebody they love? Does that mean everybody will be saved that we pray for? No. Ah, so, so some things with God are not possible. Saving a person against their will. What does salvation actually mean? What does it mean to be saved? To be what? To be like Jesus. So we'd say a transformation to be reconciled into unity in a love relationship with God. Yes? That's what that means. Can you get that trust and love with God by threat, force, command, coercion, pressure, demand, use of power? 
No, you can't. So why are some things impossible for God? Because because of his character and nature of love, which is the template and design upon which reality exists. He cannot create a reality deviant from himself. Think that through for a second. He cannot create a reality deviant from himself, from love, because he is the source of all life and all things depend on connectivity with him and therefore we have to have harmony with him to exist. Disintegration occurs if that connection is broken. This is just reality. So when it says, for with God, nothing will be impossible, it is true in the context of this verse. And the context of the verse is telling a virgin that she can get pregnant. And that context is absolutely true. She can get pregnant with God. Uh, nothing is impossible in that context. But taken blindly, simply believing it without thought, without understanding, uh, is one of the ways many distortions about God enter our thought processes. Thinking that God can do anything, people then blame God when life doesn't turn out the way they want. Well, I prayed and it didn't turn out. Some even teach things like, well, with God, all things are possible. Therefore, things are turning out the way he wanted them. He's sovereign. He's in control. Therefore, he wanted Adam and Eve to sin. He wanted, uh, he wanted this person to be saved. He wanted this person to be abused. He wanted this person to die in a car wreck. He wanted this to happen because he's sovereign and he's in control. This is, you ever heard this type of teaching? This is not true. God didn't want Adam and Eve to sin. He didn't want anybody to suffer and die. This leads to what I call magical thinking. Birth defects. Birth defects. Oh, wow. I can't tell you how many patients I see who have a complication in pregnancy or a child born with a defect, and they say, well, God, want, God wanted us to have this problem. God blessed us with this problem. And, I, I, and I, I, I'm supportive, so I don't challenge them in my office. It's not the place to do that. In a setting like this, if somebody said that, though, I would say, so then if a doctor is going to do surgery to correct the defect, he's working against the divine will? You see, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Isn't it a natural human response to say that if God is love and that God is in charge, that he can change this, well, see, fix this? So, but no, notice what you're saying, natural human response. What's the desire there? What's the, what's the underlying emotional motive that leads to this type of magical thinking? It's, it's fear and a desire to be safe, a desire to be secure, desire to, 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 to feel like everything's going to turn out okay. It's that desire to be protected. To not hurt. Yes. Yes, to be delivered. Yes, sure. And so people have lots of magical thinking. I see it all the time. People praying for a healthy marriage where they continue to cheat on their spouse. I have you know, people, people, maybe they're not cheating. They pray for a healthy marriage, but they still curse their spouse regularly. I see this verbal abuse in the relationship, but they pray every day for a healthy marriage. You can't get a healthy marriage if you're verbally abusing your spouse. You can't do it. It's like praying for healthy lungs while you smoke cigarettes. It just doesn't work. It goes against the way life is constructed to operate. But people have magical thinking, and it's a way of disowning responsibility. I'm not responsible for the problems in my marriage, for cursing my spouse, or speaking ugly words, or, or, or doing the things that I'm doing. I'm praying to God, and he's going to fix it for me. It's in his hands now. 
Are there other passages of Scripture that pop into your mind that are taken as proof texts out of context that end up misrepresenting God? Anything just pop into your mind you've come across? Train the child on the way he should go. Oh, there's a classic. <laughs> Train a child on the way he should go. When he is old, he won't depart from it. Which many people have been hurt by because they take it to mean that if you do a good job, you get a good outcome. But it's, it's, I believe it's mistranslated, and it should be train a child according to his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Meaning, let the child be in charge of their upbringing. Let the child determine when they go to bed, what foods they eat, whether they do their homework or don't do their homework. Let the child be in charge. And you can be sure they will grow up to be self-indulgent, narcissistic, self-centered, exploited of others, and they won't turn away from it. Now, how, how can we know? Because the, because the, the verse can be interpreted either way. The, the, the Hebrew allows both, both variants there. So how do we know which is the right one? Well, how about we have a case where you have perfect parenting, a parent who never makes any mistake of any kind. God parenting Lucifer, God parenting Adam and Eve, then we're guaranteed a good outcome, right? Well, it didn't turn out good. He, he didn't make, it wasn't because he didn't train them up in the right way. You see, so it has to be the other one because we've ruled out the first one. And so it's not a promise you, you, of a guarantee of a good outcome if you do a good job. It's a promise of a bad outcome if you do no job at all. But you can do a really good job and still get a bad outcome. Yes? And I've always heard that train of a child, you know, the way to go, and when it's old, it'll not depart. How long can Christ wait to come second time until everybody gets old? Yes, yeah, so salvation by senility. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what we're talking about, right? When all the desires and cravings of the carnal heart are so worn down in a feeble body that you don't want to do anything except die and go to heaven anyway. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a testament to something, isn't it? Um, in the first paragraph, let's look at the first paragraph. It says, the Gospel of Luke was written primarily to the Gentiles. Luke himself was a Gentile, implied in the context of Colossians 4, uh, as was uh, Theophilus to whom the gospel is addressed. In addition to being a physician, Luke was a meticulous historian. In introducing the gospel, Luke places Jesus in real history. That is, he puts the story in the historical context of its time. Herod was the king of Judea. Augustus was reigning over the Roman Empire. And a priest by the name of Zacharias was exercising his turn in the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 3, Luke mentions six contemporary dates related to the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. So, the, the, the lesson notes that Luke is a physician, and it also notes a certain method of presenting the truth. And that's an evidence-based method. I just want to point this out to you. You see, doctors want to persuade people not by declarations, but by educating them with facts and evidence that they can comprehend and understand. Well, this is how health actually works. This is how the laws of health work. This is what's actually healthy for you, and why? So that you'll be persuaded in your own mind. And, and so Luke, as he's writing here, he's saying, this is historical. This is factual. Look at the evidence. We can document this. Which is way different than, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, don't ask questions. And the lesson points out in the last paragraph, he did this because he wanted to separate reality from myth. He didn't want them to bring, believe myths. So, question. Are there any myths taught in Christianity today? Throw some out at me. What are the myths? What are myths taught in Christianity today? Yeah, there are things that aren't true. Any, any, any examples that pop into your mind? always said, die and go to heaven. Or, 
<laughs> How about the universe? The universe was created six thousand years ago. Does the does the Bible teach that? No. No. The Bible the Bible teaches that Earth was terraformed six to ten thousand years ago, but not the Earth create not, not not the universe. It says in uh, Job thirty eight that the sons of God sang together for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. Well, how are they singing for joy unless they're already in existence? Well, it was clear the earth was without form and void. Right, so there was something here, something here in the corner of the Milky Way. So, no, this terraforming happened. This plant, this solar system was constructed uh, six, ten thousand years ago, but, but, but not the whole universe. How about leadership in the church is for men only? Is this a myth? Yes. Absolutely. This is a myth. How about leadership in the church is only for those who have a seminary degree? It's another myth. It's a myth that has strong historical traditional roots to it and is practiced as if it's gospel. It's orthodoxy. To question it, it's like, are, are you trying to overthrow the are, are you against the church? God is the source of death, which he inflicts as punishment on the disobedient. This is a myth. It's commonly taught in Christianity, and every denomination of Christianity teaches this that I know of. That justice requires that he inflict it in judgment, and then he executes and kills. God, death comes out from God. We'll learn different this afternoon. Yes? Can I ask you a question about the women thing? I know some people that um, just categorically dismiss Paul as a misogynist and you know disregard the, the chapters of stuff he wrote about women being quiet in the church and let them ask their husbands and so on and so forth. But I don't want to get into that specifically so much, but it made me think of something else. What about authority in the church? Does one person have authority over another person. For instance, in one of the um, um, 28 fundamental beliefs, it says, we believe in the continuing authority of Ellen White. And I'm going, what authority? What are they even talking about? And does anybody have authority over someone else in God, in the body of Christ? So, so two, two things. First, when you deal with people who, who struggle, I would recommend you go get the remedy and look up that verse and see how I've phrase that because I, I i think you'll find whichever verse it is that you're talking about in paul's writings that are critical with critical women go in there and, and read those and you'll find that i've added a little historical context for instance about women not shouting in church and so forth and so on the context was he was dealing like um with the corinthians who um were coming out of a um Fertility cult worship in which they were cult prostitutes and the cult prostitutes would shave their head so you could identify when you went to worship. Oh, she's got a shaved head. Then I can go worship with her and you know what you do with a cult prostitute, right? And, and, and they would, and they would make a lot of noise and they'd yell and they'd make a, a big scene in, in the church. And so Paul is saying, hey, we do not want people to believe that in God's house, in, in, in the worship of Jesus Christ, that we actually behave in those ways. If you're going to be that way, he said, if you're going to act in those ways, well, then shave your head. <laughs> so he actually tells them that, basically, so that people will understand that that's what you're advertising. Don't advertise yourself as a, a woman of God, and then behave this way. 
Okay, And so these are the issues going on that Paul's dealing with because of cultural context issues, not because of some principle that should uh, uh, be applied over the landscape of human history. But you think he would, might be addressing prostitution itself over how much noise you made. No, because, because the Christian people, and he does if you read in the, in the New Testament, he talks about don't give your bodies to sexual indulgences and stop doing the things you used to do in this hedonistic lifestyle you used to do before you came to Christ. He, he talks about that stuff. He does. So, and the other question then was authority. First off, what, where is the source of authority? Jesus. Truth. Thank you. Now, because God is the source of truth, we can say God, but it's not simply his person. It's not simply his office. It's not simply his power. What is authoritative is always truth. Truth is authoritative. This is what's authoritative. And this is what has authority. Uh, and, does, and position doesn't give one authority. Now, in an arbitrary, in reality, it doesn't. In an arbitrary system uh, where you set up a system of rules, for instance, a baseball game, this is arbitrary, and you have an authority called an umpire, and he can make calls that go against reality. Can't he? Absolutely. Somebody touched the bag, but the person didn't touch him with the ball, but he calls him out anyway. This is not reality. The video shows it wasn't reality, but he can call it this way. He's got the authority in an arbitrary system. And so are you looking at authority through the lens of imposed rules? Are you looking at authority through the lens of design law? Oh, we come back to that. When you come to design law, truth is authoritative. It's always authoritative. And so then when you come to the structure of the church, authority in the church is the truth. And how do we find the truth? The best way, in my view, is the integrative evidence-based approach. You integrate scripture, science, experience, looking for harmonized truth. When we fracture those out and we use scripture only, then what happens is we end up with these different authorities. I've got a degree in biblical languages. I've got a degree in theological systematic study. I've got a degree in this. I've got a degree in that. And we argue our degrees back and forth. And then we have 34,000 different Christian groups all arguing who's got the authority to tell you what this verse means. Okay? No. And this is why you notice the approach in this class is always to present the truth, hopefully in a loving way, and leave you free to weigh it out, and hopefully with evidence that's persuasive, that is testable and evidence-based. Uh, what, Russell? This is what Christ struggled with. You know, the, the religious leaders of the day said, how does this carpenter presume to tell us uh, what truth is? And the people said, he speaks as though, he speaks as one with authority. Because he was delivering truth. reality, yes. he was he was explaining how life actually works in reality as God created it, and they go, "Well, that makes sense. Wow, that's powerful." Okay, and that's where authority comes from. But people get confused because they accept the lie that position. And I, in, in my own personal experience, I've had experiences where I've had discussions about these things, and I've been told by people in church office that he's the senior pastor. You shouldn't question what he says. He has been, he is God's anointed, and you have no business questioning what he teaches. I've been told this. And I thought, wow, did that apply to Martin Luther? Yeah. I mean, you just go through history, it's just not right. That is not how the church is supposed to function. Yes. We still have respect for people who have been ordained by God, and we give them respect, 
and courtesy. Thank you. And love. Thank you. But we respect the truth. Right. We do not. We do not demean others. Christ did not demean others except by condemning their practices. And he, he said about the Pharisees, you need to do what they say, but they are contaminated. And they're of their father, the devil. Right. And they're snakes. Yeah. But, but he, he didn't tell them, you have to do what, the, what they say. Myths in Christianity. The myth that I brought up, the first one, was God is the source of inflicted death. Do we teach that? How about God requires a payment in order to assuage his wrath? God isn't actually for us. Jesus is for us. God has to be persuaded or convinced by his son to be for us. And if it wasn't for his son, God would lash out and get us. This is a myth. Sin is a legal problem. It's a myth. Sin is a condition of being that is deviant from God's design and disconnects us from him. Sunday's lesson, bottom pink section, it says, Luke, an inspired author, and this may actually tie into Paul's comment, an inspired author used other materials in his writings. Very interesting, the lesson observes. Obviously, that use of other sources doesn't negate the inspiration or authority of what he wrote. What lessons should that have for us as Seventh-day Adventists regarding the question of how inspiration, either canonical or non-canonical, works in inspired writers? Hmm. wonder where that's coming. What is that about, Tom? I'm so confused. <laughs> you know, for those with a little bit of an Advent history, about 30 years ago, there was a brouhaha in the Advent church over uh, whether Ellen White, quote, unquote, plagiarized some of her materials or not. And then uh, there was no plagiar- plagiariz- uh, plagiarization. Is that, is that a right word? Yeah. There was none of that going on because the laws at the time were different than the laws today. Um, did she uh, uh, borrow or quote other authors? Yes, she did. Um, but this is how I view this. If anybody ever, if anybody brings this up to you, because I have an uncle who struggles with this question, and this is what this is my answer to people who struggle with this. And, and my my uncle's wife, my aunt, uh, suffered with a brain tumor, and I give him this metaphor. Imagine. Um, Glenda, who's got this brain tumor, you discover in one of the neurology journals that, that, that a neurologist has discovered a treatment that cures this brain tumor. And he's written out the exact procedures you have to follow in order to get cured. And in fact, there's testimony from multiple people who've done it, and it works, and it actually cures this tumor. Uh, but you find out later that he copied it from someone else. Would you then not give it to, to your wife to cure her? Because it's copied. It's irrelevant whether it's copied. The question is, does it work? Is it true? Back to the authority of what's authoritative. Truth is authoritative. It's, if it, is it true? That's the question. It's a complete red herring to not use something that's actually true because, well, this person said they were, but they actually got it from somebody else. What, what difference does it make? If it's restorative, if it's true. It's the truth that matters, the message itself, not the um, messenger. The messenger is not what's important. It's the message. So I tell people, if you've got that concern, just read it. And the other aspect of inspiration is this. Does the scripture teach that spiritual things are spiritually discerned? That the carnal mind is enmity to God? 
That we cannot understand spiritual truths without the Holy Spirit helping us. Is all this true? So to the degree that any human being writes spiritual truth, the only way they're able to do that is the Holy Spirit has enlightened them to it. Whether it's Billy Graham, whether it's Max Licato, whether it's Luke, Paul, whether it's Ellen White, whomever's writing, it's only true, if it's true, it's only because the Holy Spirit gave them that truth. Don't get caught up in the argument about, well, do they have this gift or that gift? It's irrelevant. The question is, is it true, consistent with Scripture or not? That's the question. It's just a big red herring going the other direction. And it cheats people out of actually being blessed because they're, they're, they're caught up on issues that don't matter. And this goes to the question of why. Why does this happen? This question here. It's because it's about maturity versus immaturity in your thinking. Children who don't know how to think yet, and they don't. Children don't know how to think. They don't know how to reason through problems. They don't know how to weigh evidence. They don't know how to integrate diverse threads of evidence. They don't know how to prioritize. They don't know how to test against standards to come to healthy inclusions. So what they want... What they seek, in fact, what they demand is an authority figure to tell them the answer. They demand it. They want a ruling. Mommy, what's right? What's the right answer? Daddy, what's the right answer? Teacher, umpire, referee, judge, pastor, pope, or the Bible. They want a ruling. They don't want to think. They don't want to figure it out. They don't want the evidence to speak. They want a ruling from authority they can trust. And many Christians operate at this level not wanting to think through the issues, to understand reality, but instead want simply an authoritative source to tell them the answer. So this is why they get really concerned then about who wrote what. Because if they plagiarize, then I can't have trust. This person isn't somebody's trust. Oh no, and the whole thing, they're all, all their security collapses. Who wrote the rule book? Rule book gets very, very important. It's magical thinking again. How many people have you seen use the Bible in magical thinking ways? Well, God is in control. It's one of them that, that strikes me. Um, because no matter what happens, God is in control. Until something really, really bad happens. Your child is kidnapped, tortured, whatever. And then what happened to God's control there? Well, it was in his plan. It was, it, was, it was He wanted that to happen. We can't see now. God's ways are not my ways. They're higher than my ways. In some way, that's going to be really beautiful in the end. This is what, this is what you'll hear. Yes, and what, what people look for is they want the right authority to give them the right list of rules so they can do the right behaviors so they can be right. and they See, I'm on the base. I can't get tugged out. You can't tag me out while I'm on the base. I'm keeping the rules. See, and I'm safe. Safe. This is what people, they want to be safe. And so they want the right rules so they can't be found fault with. Yes? Here again, um, doesn't the Bible say that to give thanks in all things and that for these fiery temptations that are coming on us, that are testing us, be thankful for all these things. Again, all these not lousy things that are happening. No, it's not. It doesn't say thankful for all things. Why should we be yeah. thankful in them? Why should, what, what should we be, be thankful for? They suck. Because. <laughs> they hurt. They're be, terrible. They hurt people okay. we love. Context. 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 Um, once there's brokenness of any kind, there are no pain-free options. Think through the metaphor of a broken leg. Once the leg is broken, once there's brokenness, once there's injury, there are no pain-free options. 
you ignore it, don't let anybody touch it, don't let no, any remedy come to it, you're chronically in pain and chronically disabled. And you'll probably get worse with infection and other things over time. If you actually go to the orthopedic surgeon, get it set, go to physical therapy, the entire process of healing brokenness is painful. And so we are all broken, we're injured, we're damaged. God is therapeutically intervening in our lives to bring healing and restoration, but that process is often painful. If we have a childlike mindset, like a child who gets vaccines, when mommy gives the child a vaccine, what's the child's perspective on that? Why are you doing me? This is horrible. This is terrible. Don't you love me? Why are you, not, why are you hurting me? But the child can't understand that they're doing this for, to protect them from worse harm later. And so when it says rejoice in your trials, trials bring, bring character, it's telling us that we are faced with difficulties for the purpose of wrestling through our own fears and insecurities to come to a trust in God in the outcome that I can't see how it's going to turn out, but I know you well enough that I can trust you with the outcome, that our faith and confidence in God grows stronger, even if the immediate circumstances in our life don't improve. You're taken to the cross and crucified upside down like Peter, or you're beheaded like Paul. Yes? Amen that I had as a child was that if I would not be so close to God, I wouldn't have so many trials. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And that's not true. That's right. It's the path of the justice is the perfect light. The way of the transgressor is hard. So we as Christians think we have trouble. But because we have that peace with Jesus, we don't have any inkling of the kind of trouble that someone without that peace will have. Mm-hmm. And I get this idea, this, this goal of wanting to be secure, wanting somebody in a, in a position of authority to tell you the answer. People feel, I get this all the time. All the time I get emails and I get... They come to see you. <laughs> now, I'm not talking in my office. I'm talking in, the, in this ministry. I get emails from people to my ministry. And when I go speak around the world, people come to me and say, is it right if I work on Sabbath as a nurse and, uh, and, and keep the money or do I have to give all the money to the church? Is it right if, and I get these questions all the time like this. Is it right if I eat this when I'm trying? Is it right if I have this issue? Is it right? Is it right? Why with a mitered crown? <laughs> well, then my answer, is, my answer is always Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And that was regarding all these religious observances, including he cites specifically Sabbath. In there, I can't. I can't be your conscience for you. I can't make this decision for you. Tim, how about um, the myth that I grew up with—the ABCs of prayer: ask, believe, and claim—and then God will supply all your needs. Amen. Oh, yeah, that's it. Prayer formulas. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. But yes, ask, believe, and claim, and then everything gets taken care of. This is level two. We'll deal with this this afternoon. See if I do the right prayers in the right way in the right time then I get the right reward. Let's make a deal with God. Joseph, to keep in mind, that kind of mentality was permeated, inundated on us through junior guide, through insight, through primary treasurer, through every... Till children's story up front. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so this is what... So, to do because of what they were taught. So our seminar this afternoon, Growing Up in Christ, right? How do we mature? Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, now it's time to put away childish things. Are we today still thinking through the mind of the, of the lens we learned in childhood? Or have we grown past that to look back and say, you know what, that was great for me when I was six. 
That helped me when I was six. How many, how many things were you taught at six that were actually quite helpful at age six? In life in general. Many, but, but you don't think that way today. In fact, to think that way today, we, we, we would call you special. <laughs> yes. we make a big mistake when we blame our parents and our instruction for the fact that we did think as children? Blame? Children think like children. I'll give you an example. My one 18-month-old daughter, I'm taking her away from the swimming pool and she doesn't want to go. And I swear I never said these words to her in her life. She said, Mommy, if you make me go, Jesus won't love you anymore. (laughs) She made that up herself. I mean, we make up a lot of this stuff ourselves. We don't need to be taught it. Yeah, yeah, but she said that because... Children do what children do. And she knew that Jesus was important to me. Right, and she was manipulating you. She didn't believe that. She, she was trying to coerce and manipulate you. That's what kids do. If she, if she thought she could have said, if you'd make me go, Michael won't love you anymore, she'd have said that. Yeah. But children, children have children thinking. Yes, that's right. So it's important that we grow past that, and it's not necessarily something that someone said to us in childhood. We could have figured that out perfectly well on our own. I don't know. I think I think that uh, the system is corrupt with a with a with a regimented way of thinking that I- that infects us so deeply that by the time we're old enough to think, it's almost impossible to think past it. I don't think that there's an active working there's not an active agenda within the the institutional church to teach children thinking. We indoctrinate. We want to teach them the right things to think. Okay. How, all right. How many have when you were growing up were taught how to think versus what to think? What to think? How many were taught what? To, now these are the right things to think. Yeah. yeah. This is the majority. What what to think? These are the truths. Here's what they are, and you give the proof text as to why. But the, but the whys are declarative, authoritative proof texts, not built into reality why. It's, it, it's, it's this way. Um, but, so, the, the, I'll get you one second, Wendell. So let me, with this idea, imposed law thinking requires a ruling authority to rule. Design law thinking requires educators to educate. Imposed law, ruling authorities have to rule. Design law, educators educate on how reality works. So that people go, well, that makes sense. I, I, I wouldn't want to deviate from that. It's, it's too sensible. Wendell. It's easier to grade the papers if you get a specified response. Okay? Yes. And being, you know, in the, anyone who's had to teach... It's easier to ask a specific question mm-hmm. and get back a specific answer, but that doesn't teach thought. That teaches mm-hmm. detail. Right, and in medical school, just being able to regurgitate the answers on paper, passing your board exams. This is why there's never been a correlation between board certification and quality of medical care. Because board certification, there are people who can regurgitate cognitive answers. It has nothing to do with clinical skill. So they need to be English majors. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it is true. Isn't that right? Yes. Okay, yes. One thing to keep in mind, though, in the whole discussion of the parenting and what we went through is I, I truly believe that, uh, I can speak for myself, but my parents did the best that they had with the information they had, and they uh, 
they were growing out of even a darker period. Sure. And so in that whole process of, as we're discussing, the, the brokenness, uh, I think it's a, just a pervasive general brokenness that we're progressively coming reason. Let's progress to, to more. Yeah. If anybody's heard me suggest that there was, was, was bad motive or evil intent, please, uh, let's just wipe that from our thinking completely. I, I'm thinking everybody's parents had their best interests at heart and was doing the best that they knew how with the information they had. I am not in any way suggesting that there is an intent to, to do harm here at all. But as you say, you know, people are teaching what they know, and there are certain levels of thinking that actually make it harder for people to learn to think for themselves, certain ways of teaching that make it harder, certain authoritarian ways of teaching. And uh, I know a lot of people, and, and for those of you who are raised in the Adventist church, look at your high school class, see how many are still in the church today, what percentage I would be surprised if 50% of your class is still in the church today. I appreciate what you brought up here about the method of education. Hmm. And uh, in all honesty, this is what I appreciate about you, is that you seem to have an extremely unique skill in being able to use the, the question method for helping and encouraging thinking. Um, so many Sabbath, virtually all Sabbath school classes I've sat in, they try to do this with a question, uh, questioning procedure, but it's just more rehashing. Absolutely. And so, uh, I wish we had more that had the ability and the skill to be able to use this method effectively. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mon- let's go to Monday's lesson. Second paragraph. It talks about the birth stories. It says the birth of John and Jesus have parallels. Both are miracles. In the case of John, Elizabeth uh, had gone past her childbearing age. In the case of Jesus, the virgin uh, was able to bear a child. Both of them are miracle births. But I, just, I do want to make a note of the distinction. These were not the same miracles. The miracle that Elizabeth experienced is the same miracle that all the barren women who ended up giving birth experienced, and it was healing of a physical malady. The same type of meal, same type of healing in, in principle as healing blindness or healing deafness. In this particular case, they healed the reproductive organs were healed, and then these women still had to have normal relations with their husbands in order to get pregnant. Whereas Mary, on the other hand, did not need a physical healing of something that was wrong with her reproductive abilities. She was actually miraculously impregnated. So those are not the same types of miracles, even though miracles are involved. Does everybody follow me on this? Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> when we speak of the miracle births, it also gives us opportunity to demonstrate how Bible history, the historical facts of the Bible, are also frequently metaphorical or symbolic of a larger reality. For instance, Jacob's family. Brother betrays brother, selling Joseph. Metaphor for Lucifer betraying Christ and turning against him. The children of Israel as slaves in Egypt, symbolic as humans as slaves to sin. Pharaoh, symbolic of Satan who who abuses and, and enslaves the people. Moses, a deliverer, symbolic of Christ to deliver us from sin. Um, the attacks on the gods of Egypt and the ten plagues, symbolic of Christ's attack against the lies of Satan. Walking through the, sea, the Red Sea, symbolic of baptism. Manna from heaven, symbolic of the, Jesus himself interpreted, I'm the bread of heaven, come down. With all that in mind, 
I want to talk just briefly, since we're talking about miracle births, there are seven barren women recorded in Scripture who gave birth, had miracle births. And all of them are types of Christ. Every one of them are a metaphor type of Christ. Let's just run through them real quick. Sarah was barren, remember? And she gave birth to Isaac. And Isaac metaphorically acted out Mount Moriah, sacrifice. Remember, he was going to be sacrificed. So symbolically represents Christ as our sacrifice. Rebecca was barren. And she, of course, gave birth to Jacob, who became Israel and had 12 sons. And Jesus, of course, established the 12, tri- uh, the 12 apostles upon which the church was built. The 12 tribes for the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Rachel was also barren, and she gave birth to Joseph, who was sold into slavery and became the ruler of the people. And Jesus went into the slavery of sin uh, in his incarnation and became sin who knew no sin in order to free us from it. Another one? Anybody remember another one? Hannah, Hannah okay. Uh, Hannah, Samuel was what? The high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Anybody remember another one? Manoah's wife. Gave birth to Samson. Samson was a, a, a ruler, uh, had strength, and delivered Israel from the bondage of their oppressed nations and ruled over them and was the judge over them. Jesus, of course, is our shield and strength and ultimately will rule the universe. And then, of course, the last... Oh, wait, two more. The Shunammite woman. Remember the Shunammite woman? Also barren, and she gave birth, and what happened to that son? Died and rose again. You see the the metaphor? And then Elizabeth, who gave birth to John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets. And do you see the the parallels here in how this is real-life history, but the real-life history also teaches a larger reality. And the Bible does this a lot. I think it's pretty cool. Now, do you find it odd... Now, this is, my, this is my personal speculation, so I'm not citing any inspired sources here. But my, my just personal speculation as I read this, do you find it odd that Abraham's wife, Isaac's wife, and Jacob's wife were all barren? What are the odds there? Three generations in a row, barren women. Is that, is that odd to anybody but me? Is it just happenstance, coincidence, or is there a great controversy being born out? And and Satan knows that God has chosen Abraham to be the conduit for the Messiah, and Satan is doing something with nature to try and prevent birth, to try and prevent this from happening. In three generations in a row, he's trying to interfere with the natural process. It's speculation, I don't know. And God, we do know, though, that God miraculously allowed their fertility abilities to be healed where they could have this. So I, I, I don't know. I think maybe there might be something going behind the scenes there. Third paragraph states, John was to be a preparer for the way of Jesus. Prepare of the way for Jesus. Of the way for Jesus. What does that mean, prepare? Prepare how? Prepare what? Call yes, call the people. Okay. The minds of the people ready to receive Jesus. What was the basic message? Boil it down into days. Don't use the word repentance. Boil it down into English. What was he calling upon them? Turn back to God. Okay. And, 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 and so what was necessary for them to realize the need to turn back to God? Sin. So there was a call for them to become aware of their condition. And that they're, in other words, they're sick, they're terminal, there's something wrong with them in heart, in mind, in character. And the method 
that they were currently engaged in to solve their problem was ineffectual. Was this all not part of his message? You guys are sick, sin sick, and this thing that you're doing over here in the temple is it's not working. It's corrupted. There's something else that needs to happen. A real remedy needs to come. And so he's preparing the people, introducing cognitive dissonance where they realize there's something wrong and what they've been doing their whole life religiously every week going to church on the right day, paying their tithe out of the, out of the herbs of their garden, eating only the right foods, religiously working hard at this and they weren't getting any better. They weren't getting well, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. And so he says, this isn't working. There's a real remedy coming. Something can truly fix what's broken in you. And so he created a hunger, desire for something better, and then he hands it over to Jesus. Here's the way, the truth, and the life. Russell, you had your hand up? One of my mentors likes to say that ineffective treatment rendered with a greater frequency or greater enthusiasm remains ineffective. Oh, I love that. An ineffective treatment rendered with... Greater frequency or greater enthusiasm remains ineffective. Greater frequency and greater enthusiasm remains ineffective. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I'm going to have to use that. I love that. (laughs) It's true. No, seriously. And you think in religious circles... How many people, when they feel guilt-ridden or something, they'll do more rituals. They'll do more, um, you know, I don't want to pick out any particular type of ritual and say one, but there's lots of different rituals people do over and over and over again because they're feeling worse. John was called the second Elijah to prepare for the first advent. Do we today have a role to present a message of truth like John which exposes the failings of much of the religious world to actually heal and transform people and point out a real remedy and prepare for the second advent. Yes, do we have a role to do that? There's a prophecy in Malachi about before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. What's its purpose? What's the purpose of that prophecy? What's the purpose of the Elijah coming before Christ comes? Do you think the church today has found itself in a similar place as the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago? Yes. Popular, but powerless. Filled with routine, ritual, rope performance, and people stuck in sin. Is there a message which is to cause people to be dissatisfied with the status quo and realize their terminal condition and point them to a remedy that actually heals For when Christ comes, it says, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Is there a message in this time in earth's history that is to help people experience that here and now? Well, this afternoon, we're going to walk you through that message. So Tuesday's lesson. Third paragraph. It says, the virgin birth of Jesus goes against all nature, and it cannot be explained by nature or naturalistic Philosophy. Even Mary had her question. How had her question? How can this be? Since I do not know a man. The angel assured her that this would be the work of the Holy Spirit, and with God, nothing would be impossible. Mary, Mary's immediate and faithful submission was remarkable. Why is the virgin birth of Jesus important? 
You know, there are people that believe Jesus was a prophet and that he was born of Mary, but they don't believe in the virgin birth. What do you lose if you take away the virgin birth? The remedy is lost. The remedy for our condition is lost. Why? See, what was needed for salvation, very high overview real quick, truth in order to destroy lies to win us to trust was needed. Now, could Christ have revealed truth about his character without being born of a virgin? Could he have just appeared like he did in Old Testament times? He appeared as a human being on earth, and he talked to um, Abraham, and he talked to Moses and other people. Could he have just appeared and, and, and lived as a human being and revealed truth? Could he have done that? Yes, he could have. But was that all that was needed to save us? No. The human condition itself had to be healed or, re- or restored back to rightness with God. And the only way for that to happen was for Christ to partake of the human condition, and in his humanity, establish a new humanity perfect and right with God. And that could only happen through divinity merging with humanity. Yes, Russell. I think there's another aspect of it as well. Uh, There had been Babylonian, um, Egyptian, Grecian fables, legends, and gods who who were supposedly born of a virgin. And this, this aspect of Christ's arrival was something to dispel the, the mythology, the, the rumor, the, the, uh, the pagan belief. Well, wh- why do you think that was so common in these other mythos? Why do you think these other myths, these other religions, had all these virgin births happening, or supposedly? Smoke screen. He's read, he's read biblical prophecies. He's listened. He's learned. And then right in Genesis 3, it was announced that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. And so he's undermining the amazement of the virgin birth by having this to be common in all religions. And so, well, so you got your virgin birth, God. We, we have ours too. Our God being dead three days and resurrected. Yeah. All of these things were pre-existent to Christ coming. Yeah. yeah, the mystery religions. Yes, exactly. What do you think of this so in the lesson? It says, every human question no matter how natural or logical, must give way to the divine answer. Be it creation or the cross, the incarnation or the resurrection, the downpour of manna or the outpouring at Pentecost, the divine initiative demands human surrender and acceptance. I don't like the way it's worded, whatever it means. <laughs> Wendell? I put beside that John fifteen fifteen. So share John fifteen fifteen with us. I no longer call you servants... But friends, there you go. Because, because you know what I'm doing. Exactly. Servants don't understand their master's business, and I want you to understand. Yes. Way in the back. Comment online. Moderator, please ask Dr. Jennings to compare Matthew 16, 15 to 18, and Isaiah 2, 2 to 3, from the standpoint of God-given knowledge being the basis for Christ's church. Now, let me answer this while they're looking that up. We'll come to that. Um, this idea of, of the divine initiative demands human surrender. What does divine initiative mean? If it means the evidence is so clear, so self-evidence, the weight of truth and evidence itself demands we recognize it by overwhelming clarity and reality, then okay. That's, that, that's okay. It's just so clear, it's self-evident, that, that, that evidence demands that we recognize it. Then that can be used that way. But if it means that God declares a truth and then he demands we surrender and accept by his declarative word, 
then it's a little bit more uncomfortable because he doesn't actually operate that way. That's not how he does his business. Okay? So who's got the... Uh, Isaiah 2, yes. 2 and 3. Yes. In days to come, the mountain where the temple stands will be the highest one of all, towering above all the hills. Many nations will come streaming to it, and their people will say, let us go up to the hill of the Lord, to the temple of Israel's God. He will teach us what he wants us to do. We will walk in the paths he has chosen, for the Lord's teaching comes from Jerusalem, from Zion, who speaks to his people. Okay, and then Matthew 16. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's it out of the, the remedy. What about you? Who do you tell people I am? Simon Peter, Peter answered instantly, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus smiled and said, Well done, Simon, son of Jonah. You did not gain this truth from humans, but from my Father in heaven. And though you are Peter... Your name means small stone. It is on the solid rock of the Son of Man that I will build my church, and hell's barricades, uh, and, and hell's barricade of selfishness and lies will not stop it. Isn't the combination of the two verses what they're maybe talking about? Is in both cases God is instructing the people what to believe. The point was: Should we figure it out ourselves? Should we just blindly follow what God tells us? And here's two instances where it tells. That people should, that God is ordaining a path and you should take it. You know, um, God has always given instruction, but He always gives instruction weighted on evidence. So when He gives the instruction here, when Christ gives the instruction here related to on this rock, basically the rock of the Son of Man, I'm going to build my church, this is coming in the context of having walked with Him and seen Him in evidence heal, restore, raise the dead, and all the other things He's done lived out in evidence first. And then he clarifies. Same thing on the road to Emmaus. When the, after the, the uh, resurrection, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're discouraged. And what does Christ do? He first takes them to the evidences of Scripture before he actually reveals himself to them. So there's an evidence-based approach first before the declarative statements are made in God's way. He wants us to be persuaded uh, uh, because it actually is that way. Because what, he, what is it the Lord wants from us? Understanding. The understanding which leads to? Which leads to? Love. And this is why it says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, but by the Spirit. And how does the Spirit work? The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth and love. Okay, Because you cannot get love by command, by declaration, by authoritative decree. I command by the name of the Lord that you love me. It, can, it never works. It's only by being persuaded by the evidence of the supreme trustworthiness and self-sacrifice and, and God's love for you that you're one to love. And that's the method that, that, God, that God uses. So when you think of the Wednesday is about the Bethlehem story and the, and, the virgin, and, and, the, and the birth, when you think of that story, has it been told so many times that you actually have become immune to it? It's become cliche because we do it so many times, the, the manger scene and so forth. But so just imagine with me for a moment that you um, go to a barn, and in this barn is a 17-year-old girl with her husband, a newborn babe, 
And you're told that this is the creator God who's created everything. That little baby. Just think about that for a minute. First off, do you have a hard time believing it? That baby is your creator. Secondly, if you do believe it, what do you do next? What happens if you believe that's the creator God? Do you worship him or try to take possession of him? He's the creator? Whoa, I got a chance here. That's power. The goose that laid the golden egg. Do you think, how can I humble myself before him or how can I use him? If you actually put yourself, imagine that situation. Do you feel safe and secure with a God who has to have his diaper changed? Didn't, didn't he? Are you feeling safe and secure with that? See, what law lens are you looking at this through? Back to the law lens. If you view life through an imperial dictator, imposed law view, then we need a powerful, authoritative being to be in control and make sure everybody gets their just dues. Everything's fair. But if you look through design law and you realize that all of our righteousness is filthy rags, we are all sick, uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in a terminal condition, and that baby has the cure. Then you fall down on your knees and you say, oh, thank you, God, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to cure what's wrong with us. Yes? For you to explain that makes us think how crazy of a concocted story that is. But when we look at it from the lens of the great controversy, it then becomes much more clear. We keep thinking oftentimes in this earth that it's all about us getting us fixed as opposed to making the harmony of heaven all back in order. Yep, exactly. All right, Wendell, closing comment. Wendell? On the bottom of Tuesday's lesson, they make a comment about natural versus majestic. Just reading the comment. Some secular cultures have been bowing into believing that everything ultimately has a naturalistic and scientific explanation. Why is this such a narrow, even superficial view of the grandeur and greatness of reality? I think it's because God is the most natural thing there ever was. Thanks for sharing that. And we'll, well, I'll give comments on that since you brought it up. Are they suggesting that God is not scientific? Are they suggesting God does things that don't make sense, that are unreasonable, that defy reality, that goes against the laws of nature? Or are they suggesting only, because it didn't really sound, they didn't word it this way, but are they suggesting only that our understanding of science is limited and it would be grandiose on our part to think that our finite minds can conceive of infinity in all the ways God works through science and nature? Which, which way do you think it is? So think in the future. As we future unfolds, we're in the new heaven and the new earth. We're spending eternity with God and Jesus. And as, as this happens, do you think that we will become, you, the universe, reality, how things work, will become less and less understandable, more and more mysterious, more unclear, and that God and his actions, be, uh, or that God and his actions become ever more clear and more understandable to us? For instance, at the virgin birth, at the virgin birth, do you think God did this without DNA and RNA? Or was DNA and RNA used? Yes. Well, then was science involved? Yes. Okay? It's just beyond our ability to comprehend. It doesn't mean that it's not scientific. It's just that our minds can't comprehend the, the level of science upon which he is, is interacting upon. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth as you revealed in Jesus, that you are a God of love, a God of 
truth, the God of evidence, the God who wins us by the supreme revelation of your beauty, of your character. We pray that you will be with this class here and all over the world. May you empower them to see the, the truth of how reality works in your kingdom and, and share this message with others that people can be freed from so much myth and so much superstition that, that clouds our, our thinking. And I pray you'll be with us this afternoon that as we do this seminar, it will be to your glory. Minds will be set free. We pray in your holy name. Amen.